0: Well, uh, passion is not something that um, our culture lacks. Just consider, just consider our local context, for example. Uh, pe- people are passionate um, about, it, about a lot of things, right? Passion about the colts, passionate about the pacers, passionate about racing, even passionate about corn, maybe, something like that. Um, Jared is, at least. Uh, people are passionate uh, about lots of different things, right? Passion about new phones that they get, new apps on those phones, new games to play. People are passionate about all their political kind of perspectives and, and uh, different pieces. I, I, still see, I still see Trump 2020 flags flying, and, and I still see Bernie stickers everywhere. It's like they just don't want to give it up. I really want to keep going with that, right? People are passionate about whatever it is that they have determined is very important to them in their life. Uh, matter of fact, just if you've never been to like a college football game, that is an atmosphere in and of itself. Um, I, was a, I was a pastor in uh, Mobile, Alabama uh, for a period of time. And uh, they take their football really seriously there. Um, <laughs> maybe because there's no NFL team, but, um, I mean, people's lawns are painted, like, red or orange. I mean, roofs are... Co- it is crazy. I went to an Alabama-Auburn game one time. It, roll Tide. This is correct. And, um, or War Eagle. depends on how you want to go about that. But anyway, the... Um, I mean, it was, it was fascinating just to literally just take it all in. <laughs> I mean, this massive stadium full of people screaming, painted, like all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, it, was, it was quite, uh, quite amazing. Um, but, but you see this, right? I, so when I was in, in Hollywood, I was, a, I was a church planter there and a pastor there as well. I went to this place called the Arclight. It was a massive theater in Hollywood um, there and big dome. I mean, it's this massive thing. And, and I'm, it's my, keep in mind, it's my first year there. I moved from Mobile, Alabama. Hollywood, California, a little bit different, and, um, and I'm just trying to understand the culture and, like, what are people passionate about, you know, what do people pour their lives into, and obviously their film is a big deal, and it was at that time that the original, the first movie of the Transformers came out. That was a big deal. So, you know, they get all the props, the cars are out front, you know, the red carpet, the whole thing, so I get to go, go to this thing, and I'm in the theater, and as I walk in, people are dressed like Transformers, and I'm like, what is? I just came to watch a movie. I didn't know we were participating in this thing. And, and we're in this movie watching this thing, and I'm just, I'm half watching the movie, half watching people. If you ever, if you're kind of a people watcher like me, you're like, what is going on? And there's this part of the movie, if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. It's okay. Just catch me in a second. There's this character called Optimus Prime. And, uh, and he, he transforms in this movie. Like, halfway through, he transforms from this truck to this robot. And when he transforms, he says, I am Optimus Prime and like the whole crowd just stood up, everyone just cheer. I'm like, I'm still seated, just kind of looking around, going, what, did I, what, what have I done to myself? Like, why am I here? What is happening? So people are passionate, right? They're, they're excited, passionate about the things in which, um, which they have in front of them. And that's, and that's pretty common, right? Um, that is, uh, that, is, that is, happens all around the world. You can go to the Europe or you can go to South America and find that with soccer, aka football in their terms, but we call it soccer. Um, but we were created to do this. This is not a, a bad thing. We were created to be passionate people. To say uh, we are passionate people is an understatement. Um, Blaise uh, Pascal, you may remember him from your geometry class in high school, but uh, he was also a theologian. And, uh, and here's one of the things he said I thought was, I've used this before with you guys, but just a really good assessment on the human uh, kind of uh, nature. He says, all men seek happiness. In other words, everyone seeks to be uh, satisfied. Everyone seeks to Um, something they're passionate about. This is without exception. He says, whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. They're both seeking to to be happy, satisfy themselves, and they have different views of getting there. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. He said it, it is the driving force behind all decisions that are made in life is that passion. We were, And this is, the, this is the case because we were, the Bible would say, if you open up the beginning of the Bible, it's the book of Genesis, and you don't read too far into it, and you find that we, as human beings, were made by God. And very specifically, we were made in the, what, image of God. In theology, we call this the imago Dei. It's the image of God. It's a Latin phrase for being made in the image of God. And thus, we were created in a way like God. We weren't created as God's. But we were created as a mirror or reflection of, of God. Some of the attributes that Lynn mentioned here, we uh, earlier, like we, we, we share in some of those. We are able to participate in some of those in terms of actually living some of those attributes out. And so we were created to desire and want, be satisfied, be excited, joyful, because that's how God, okay, this is gonna be a little bit of a brain teaser here. That's how God is with God. Okay? God is satisfied with God. You're like, uh, hold on, what? There is I was I was with a young man walking through the uh, we're walking through the Gospel of John together and uh, we're kinda working through uh, the book and he doesn't know a lot about it, so we're kinda working through it and we get to the not too far into it and I gotta try to just explain the Trinity. You try to do that to somebody, you're like, um Every illustration used fall falls short. But the one thing I got to that made sense to him was like, okay, understand the reason there is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is one God, three persons, three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, all that theological accuracy there. The, the reason all that is, is the case is because God is a relational God. Okay, You can boil down the Trinity down to a relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect relationship, perfect unity. That means God created us not out of need, right? He wasn't alone and lonely and thought, oh man, I'm really bored, let's create something. And it wasn't because he needed us to, to fill something up that he was lacking, because he had everything, right, in himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect relationship. So he created us as an overflow of our love relationship he has within himself. And so we find this. We find um, a couple of passages that speak of God's love for God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Isaiah 42, 1 says, uh, this is the Father speaking, behold my servant, That's uh, speaking of Jesus, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him. There's the third member of the Trinity. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. Fast forward to the New Testament. We don't find too far reading into the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. We find a voice come out of heaven, which Jesus is baptized, right? And we hear this, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Right? There's an echo, again, of that affirmation, that love, um, that relationship with God, with God. So we were created for that. So when you read the next chapter of Matthew and you see the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, uh, you find that Satan, in essence, is trying to see if Jesus would truly, if he would delight, if he would value, if he would uh, seek to be satisfied with something other than, than the Father, right? That's really what all the temptations are about, right? We, we, can, we can bypass that. You don't need that relationship. There's things better for you than that. And so those temptations, we find, are really an attack at the very heart and nature of God himself. So because we're made in the image of God, we have been created with the same desire to be satisfied, to be joyful. Those are things we have been made for. But the thing is, is they're not found in us, right? If you've lived very long, you're going to find, you can't find that in yourself, nor can you find it in the created world. you find glimpses of it, little, little pieces, little, little, little fractions of that, all right, around the world. You get a little taste of it, but it doesn't last because we were made to find that, Where? In God, right? He made us for himself. So we ultimately find that satisfaction, joy in him. That's who we were made for. That's who we are made to have a relationship with. The problem is we don't go there, right? We don't go there. We are stubborn and we try as hard as we can to find that in a person, in a, in a place, and things, right? And uh, I don't know why I just listed a noun, definition of a noun there for a second. Um, person, place, thing. Uh, but we try to find it, right? In anything in the world, any kind of uh, place we can go. And that's in essence what the Bible calls sin. That's what sin is. Sin is basically, I love how Jeremiah 2 puts it, basically, is forsaking the fountain of living water where we were made to satisfy our soul. In the middle of a desert, this water's overflowing, and we have forsaken, and we've gone out into the desert and hewned ourselves, it says, cisterns, little bowls. And it they, and they rains once a year right in the desert, and it's got holes in the bottom, it says, and we try to drink it. That's, that, that's, our, that's sin. We're basically walk around the world trying to drink from, trying to be satisfied with Anything and every one outside of God himself, we have forsaken him. and We've turned the other way. That's right? the essence of sin. We've turned away from God towards other things. And so we find that, um, that, that that's the essence of what, what sin is. So what makes a person passionate about you know, that football game we mentioned, or a relationship, or even a, a, a job? What, what about that game or that relationship or job makes that person uh, excited? It's because they perceive, again, that that, that game, that relationship, that job is good for them, will bring them that ultimate joy and satisfaction, right? They pursue. oh, this is it. I've got it. You know, this is, ult- this is finally going to work. I have finally found the thing that will fix my soul. And so they pursue these things with all their heart. And they sacrifice. You sacrifice everything to get it. And that's, in essence, what the Bible calls worship, right? So you are starting to understand that we, we do all these things. We use these religious terms, these biblical terms, right, of worship and sin and um, all these made in the image of God, but we operate, every human being operates like this. So we pursue these things, sacrifice for them, which is what worship is. So for example, a husband may sacrifice his family, work long hours to get the money and the accolades because he thinks that it's good for him, that that will meet his needs and will satisfy his soul, right? An athlete, may sacrifice her body, spend countless hours training because she thinks, you know, that, that'll work, right? That'll ultimately make her happy by achieve, achieving and winning. Uh, an actress or musician may sacrifice their time and even their friendships, honing their craft, right? Learning their lines because they, they think it's good for them. Right? That, that, that ultimately is gonna meet by achieving and receiving the accolades that come along with that, right? You take any industry, any path of life, this is what we do. So why when it comes to Jesus and it comes to the mission, do we approach the, you know, things like the scripture with apathy or give Jesus a second thought in our days or engage no one for the sake of the gospel? Why do we not do those things? It's not just because, man, we just don't have the willpower. It's not the willpower issue. It's because we don't really believe, ultimately, that Jesus is what will make us satisfied, that following him, obeying him, you know, is what actually is the most uh, joyful thing in the world. We don't believe that he is good, Um, in that way or that desirable. Because if we believed, really believed, that Jesus is the source of those things, then we'd sacrifice everything to know him. We'd sacrifice everything to, to talk about him. We'd sacrifice everything to live for him. You see? So it comes down to a faith issue. It comes down to a belief issue. It's not a willpower issue. It is a faith issue. It's a belief issue. So our problem is a desire problem. It's a faith problem. If we're honest with ourselves, we want things like respect, power, influence, attraction, stability, comfort from people in this world more than we want that from Jesus. We believe we will get it, right? Maybe from a spouse or from children or from a job or a car or a house or whatever. This makes the American dream an absolute facade, right? It's a facade, it's not real. It won't satisfy your soul. It won't bring you the things in which it promises that it will because you weren't made for this world, you were made for Jesus. So even to say, you know, oh, Chris, of course I need Jesus. I know that. So I'm in church this morning. (laughs) I got that part. That's pretty elementary. But you know, I also need other things. I mean, you can't just expect to have Jesus, right? There's lots of other things that I need in life. Is in some ways to also buy uh, a lie there, right? Anything you add to Jesus as a requirement, and that's important, requirement. A lot of these things are good. God made them. Relationships are good, right? Things of the world that can be good entities that God has made. But to add them as a requirement as a need to be satisfied, is to actually enslave ourselves to them. Not only um, that, but they will crush us in the process because nothing, and I've told you this many times, so important you understand this, no one and nothing is able to carry the weight of your human soul. Nothing and no one is able to carry the weight of your human soul outside of Jesus. It's too heavy. It's too it, much. It, it's too much. Nothing can hold under that way. No person, you will crush them if you try to thrust your soul and and, and everything onto a person. You'll crush them, right? Anything will wear out. It'll rust, it'll die, it'll go away, right? None of those things work. So if it's Jesus plus happy children, good children, then then when they're not happy, you're crushed, right? If it's Jesus plus a solid job or just any job at all, if you lose that job or you you don't like your job, it kind of stinks and you don't like it and you're bored with it, you get dejected. If it's Jesus plus a loving spouse, then when there is no spouse or your spouse isn't very loving, you're devastated. If it's Jesus plus accolades, when there's no applause and there's no recognition, you're depressed. Right? So, what do, what do we really need? What or rather who can carry the weight of the human soul? What or rather who uh, will not fold under the weight? Who will never leave you or forsake you, even in your failures and your sins? Answer? Jesus. You, you guys are well educated by now with me, right? Jesus is the answer to that. And so what we find in our text this morning is a story of a man, okay, who was satisfied with Jesus. I'm going to pull this out as we look through this passage together. And what we have today is a man who truly understood and delighted in the gospel. His name, Paul. Uh, If you read earlier in Acts, his name was Saul. He met Jesus, name got changed. He's now uh, a follower of Jesus. And he had a formula for life, a theme as it were, uh, really of the book of Galatians, right? It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything, okay? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In this passage, um, we'll find that if this equation is our our life, this is the theme of our life, then we don't need, underline the word need, we don't need fame, we don't need our independence, we don't need ease or even security in this world. Okay, that's what we'll look at. Number one, we don't need fame. Don't need fame. So here's how Paul begins. Verse one, that after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus, along with me. Okay, 14 years have passed in the life of Paul since he came to know Jesus on that dirt, dirt road there in Damascus. And for the first 14 years, um, we can honestly say, if you just think about it, he wasn't quite living up to the quote-unquote hype, okay? I mean, he was, he was like, you may not know this one, but uh, Anthony Bennett drafted by the uh, Cavaliers some years ago, number one draft pick, didn't quite live up to the potential of being that number one Draft pick. You remember Paul at the very beginning, even when, right when he met Jesus, the first person he's introduced to is Ananias. Remember this in, in Acts 10. And he is even told, look, Acts 9, 15, he says, The Lord said to him, Go, you are a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Like, well, that's quite a prophecy, right? That's quite a saying like over you. This is what you're going to be. Fourteen years have went by. He's none of those things just yet. Okay, none of the things that you know about Paul has happened yet. There's a 14-year gap. What did Paul have to show for his kind of first fourteen years of following Jesus? Well, a world of hurt, um, a lot of pain, a decade of ministry in a little known area of Syria and uh, Cilicia, from which, by the way, we know of no church plants that happened during that time. We also know of no letters follow up by Paul. A lot of the letters later on here, as you continue to flip through the Bible, are letters that Paul wrote to specific churches that he helped plant. There's no follow-up letters to these areas, right? 14 years. you was almost like, was there any fruit from this ministry? Was there anything going on there? Um, the only thing he did have, as we've seen this text here, is he had, he had Titus. Uh, somewhere along that line, those 14 years of ministry, Titus came to know Jesus, and now that's, that's kind of where, where he came from. But even the ministry he had going was set to kind of implode in many ways, according to the text, because um, so-called brothers, or Christians, and in, in these air quotes here I'm using, uh, are coming into the area and telling these new kind of Gentile converts, Gentile meaning non-Jewish people who've come to know Jesus, that the gospel is not enough, that Jesus is not enough. They need, they need to add some law here, they need to add some morality, and they need to get to work for God to prove, basically, that they're acceptable to him. All right? So they're adding things to it. Um, you know, for, forget this believing the gospel stuff. That's so elementary is what they would say. They need to move on to good works and service in the sight of God to really make progress. If you want to make progress in the walk with God, they've got to get to this. It's time to advance to varsity Christianity. In many ways, they viewed Paul as just preaching a JV gospel, okay? It was a JV gospel. Seriously, we've we got to go to varsity here. We've got to step it up. We've got to add some things. We've got to get serious. We've got, we got to make some changes because that's going to make us really acceptable to God, okay? They weren't saying Jesus wasn't important. They were just saying you've got to add more things to him. So that's where we are in this text. So, so, but there's no indication that from the text that Paul was itching or even begging to get out of this place. In verse two, we see that the only person Paul even left this. Uh, the only reason that Paul even left this place, we find out, is because Jesus basically told him to. Right? He appeared to him and said, "You need to go up to Jerusalem and go visit these guys." Paul even. Um, we find that uh, Jesus appeared to him, told him to, to move on. Paul was content with Jesus and Jesus alone. He didn't have to have the accolades, the applause, the fame, the approval from other people. He's going to get a lot of uh, encouragement. He's going to find a lot of things later on where he's going to have people that support him, stay with him. He's also going to find people forsake him and leave him. You'll see this in a lot of his letters. But here he he didn't have to move on to bigger, greater things. He was content to plow away in his little corner of the universe with Jesus as his treasure. He didn't need the fame of the world, not even the fame of the church. You can read uh, the end of chapter one. You should look up at chapter one, the very end of that, it says, And they glorified God because of, because of me. Now, you can read that verse in one of two ways as a kind of a proud, arrogant kind of statement, or as a humble statement. And it's really more of a humble statement. Paul was shocked. It was like a, was like a shocking statement if you heard him say it, like, Wait, what? They're glorifying God because of me? How is this possible, right? Um, I mean, what, again, what results had he had? What, what difference had he really made? Paul didn't need, again, the fame accolades to be satisfied. He was content with Jesus. He was content with the gospel. Paul was a follower of Jesus who happened to be a church planter and pastor, right? That was what he was content with. Let's bring this home. Okay, let's, let's apply this. Some of you may want to be the top student, right, who happens to be a follower of Jesus, a great athlete who happens to be a follower of Jesus, a high-earning employee who happens to be a follower of Jesus, a good parent who happens to be a follower of Jesus, right? We want the fame, we want the results, and we just want to tag Jesus onto it. Yeah, I got Jesus, but man, I got all this stuff going too. It's all part of, uh, in some ways, a, a Midwestern kind of bad gospel, right? Jesus plus fame equals everything. Jesus plus accolades equals everything. Jesus plus applause equals everything. Jesus plus having people like you is everything. You don't need those things. The result is that you grow impatient with Jesus, but you don't have him because he's not delivering the goods, right? You're like, come on, Jesus. I got you. I'm following you. I'm obeying you. But man, I really would like some more people to like me. <laughs> I really would like some more applause here, some more accolades, some more people give me you know, be thankful Will be great, right? But the problem with that is that we don't believe the gospel, Right? Jesus is kind of seen as some kind of giant slot machine in the sky. You kind of put your coins of good works in and you pull the lever and you're like, come on now, this has got to break sometime. I got to get the jackpot here. You got to deliver on the goods, Jesus. We need to pay out soon. But Paul is going to take this entire letter to hammer the point home again that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Nothing needs to be added. Number two, you don't need independence. Verse two, Paul says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them. So, revelation meaning God spoke to him, told him to go, and set before them, it says here, privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So, now we begin to understand why Paul is taking this trek. Why is he leaving? He's not leaving because he needs to. He's leaving because that's what Jesus wants him to do. And, he, and it says here, he appeared, uh, Jesus appeared to him, and he wanted to make sure that, uh, that he and the other leaders of the church were on the same page. And I love this about Paul. He, he didn't get a word from Jesus and say, Well, you know what? This is what we're doing. Jesus told me to do it. I'm doing it. I don't need to talk to anybody else. I don't need the affirmation of anybody else. I don't need to be in line with anybody else. It's me and Jesus. We're good. There was even a sense here of this humility. He wanted to check with others. He wanted to test the spirits, as it were, he would say in 1 Thessalonians 5, to make sure he got this right, right? He wasn't a rogue follower of Jesus. And so Paul met with here, it says, Peter, James, and John privately to discuss these matters of what he was being told to do. He didn't need to go. It wasn't something he had to do, but it was something he was willing to submit to, something he was willing to come together with these other men, join together as a team. And Paul could have easily been a one-man show. After all, uh, before he met Christ, he would actually give his testimony in, in chapter 1 here, verse 14, that he was basically a trailblazer for, uh, for Judaism, right? He was, the, he was the lead guy. He was the guy leading the charge. So he easily could have transferred that over into his relationship with Jesus, right? And just said, "Yo, know, guys, just follow me. I don't need anybody else. But he doesn't do that. He realized that his independence was not more valuable than Jesus, not more valuable than the gospel. The gospel called him to throw down his independence, Join a family, join a brotherhood, join a church, right? He was to serve others, band together, to live a life of mission, to join this and do this together. This is what he did here. This is what he's doing. He swallowed his independence. He took Barnabas and Titus along with him, the passage says. He then met with these three men who had people coming from their church, by the way, uh, who were trying to wreck his ministry. They were coming from Jerusalem in that area. But he came to work things out. So Paul was not really concerned that his gospel was different or that his, or didn't hold to the gospel or they didn't hold the gospel he had. He was concerned that these leaders might succumb to the pressure of these people that are leaving their church, right? These we sometimes call Judaizers. may have heard that along the way in our study of Galatians. These were the Jesus plus something people is the best way to list them, right? They were Jesus plus something people. And this is important to work together because Paul saw himself as in a relay race in many ways. Like, I'm not running this alone. I I gotta pass this baton off. We gotta work as a team together to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And so for the sake of unity of the church, for the sake of the mission of the church, for the sake of the sheep of the church, he chucked his own personal independence and threw himself in the ring with these other guys. Paul couldn't be passive here, right? The gospel was at stake. Everything Christ died for was at stake. For Paul to have valued his own independence more than Jesus would have destroyed the church. Really could have. Um, the same happens today. We just think, speak about it from a church standpoint. When a church, starting with the leadership, doesn't work together as a team, you're in for a disaster, right? Everybody's doing their own thing, doing their own independence, and they got their own pet ministry here and pet ministry there, and this is more important than that one, and everyone's kind of doing their own thing. You just have division, right? I told you before, there's a podcast we've been listening to, uh, some of the staff pastors have been listening to it called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and you can read that and see exactly what happens, right, uh, when you have uh, kind of independence of one leader. The pastoral team must work as a team, right? In our current situation, Justin is being placed before you to pray and to consider as lead pastor, right, to take, take kind of my place here, but he will still be a pastor, as part of a pastoral team, right? That's important that you understand that. This is how we operate. This is how we work as a team because we feel that's what the Bible actually puts forward right? for us to do. The same goes for you as a member. You have to work together. You have to support one another in ministry. You need to challenge each other to be serving and loving and proclaiming the gospel out in the world. We should be challenging each other. And as Galatians moves on, there's gonna be a lot of this one another stuff and just addressed it in the family meeting this morning, stuff we need to address. We need to move um, better on in those relationships. You'll find that. If you're going to live for Jesus and you're going to have to sacrifice some of your independence, you're going to have to put aside some of your preferences, lose some of your free time even. It might hurt a little, but that's again why Jesus said, follow me as to take up a cross and die daily. That's not comfortable. That's sacrifice, right? That's all part of it. Jesus didn't die for his church so that we could just attend a service, you know, here and there, sing kumbaya, do whatever we're going to do and go off about our lives. He died to bring us together, to join together, to serve together, to love together, and to actually go out and preach the gospel together, right? We are to be his hands, his feet, his mouth into the surrounding community in which we live. So this is what you sacrifice. You sacrifice your independence. This is what you sacrifice it for, so that what Paul sacrificed for uh, would be true as well. Again, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Number three, we don't need ease. We don't need ease. So look at verse three. It says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Okay, let's pause there for a moment. That may seem like the most culturally irrelevant statement you've ever read. Like, um, why are we talking about being forced to be circumcised? That's what makes me really uncomfortable to talk about. Um, what is going on with this whole circumcision, uncircumcised thing? You're like, this is really strange. It's mentioned like four times in this passage. Well, the whole thing comes all the way back to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we find, uh, find there a guy named Abram, who later became Abraham, and we find him uh, being told by God that, uh, that he was to circumcise his sons, um, would be a sign that his children were set apart from the rest of the world. He was creating this, this nation, these people of Israel, to be distinct and separate from the rest of the world. Fast forward that about a thousand years or so. And you have this time period between the Old Testament, there's this, the last book is called uh, Malachi. I always like to call Malachi the Italian prophet because that's kind of fun, but his name's not Malachi and he's not Italian. Uh, He was Jewish. But anyway, there's Malachi and then there's Matthew, right? And there's, you think, if you're reading the Bible, you're like, Malachi's done, Matthew starts, timeline all sealed together. Mm -mm. There's about 400 years difference between those two books. A, a, A space of time. And in that we call it, this may be a new word for you, called the Hellenistic period. What that means is there was this, the the Jewish people were being heavily influenced by the Greek culture. Alexander the Great and all that is kind of really pushing the Greek culture all over the Roman world, or the soon-to-be Roman world at that time. And so all that's taking place, and it was was very important for the Jewish people to kind of like, no, no, we're going to stay, we're going to stay whole, we're going to stay, you know, together, and we're going to continue to circumcise our sons, and we're going to continue to do that, and that was a big deal. It was, a, it was a big deal, the fact that Paul even took pride in this before his conversion speaks of its significance. You can go to Philippians 3.5. So Jews would say at this juncture in history, basically, if a man was not circumcised, there's no way he could be a child of God. Right? You, you had to be. That was kind of part of what it means to be part of the people of God. So all that. So what's going on here is that in this text here, fast forward to Galatians, to be culturally accepted, to be in the in crowd maybe, um, to have worth or value as a respectable. You know, in that sense, you need to be circumcised as a male. That's kind of how it worked. And this must, must happen for you to be right with God and to be accepted by him. That's how they understood it. And so Paul was simply saying that he took Titus with him. Okay, now, the text. He took Titus with him as a non-Jew to meet the leaders of the Jerusalem church. <laughs> and they didn't demand that Titus be circumcised. That was a big deal for the Jews in that culture. Like, wait a minute, hold on, you're not gonna make, you're not gonna make that happen? And th- this wasn't easy, um, uh, what Paul did here. Acts even records how, how Paul, um, to have a non-Jewish man with him, on top of it a full Gentile man, really set people off in the Jewish communities. You can read that in Acts, like he almost died for this. Uh, but Paul wasn't looking for the easy way out here. He's like, this is what I'm doing. It's Jesus plus nothing, nothing equals everything. He doesn't need to join in. He doesn't need to be Jewish in order to, to be a Christian or to be a follower of Jesus. He can be Gentile and be a follower of Jesus. That was a huge deal, okay? That was part of that whole Jesus plus something. For them, it was Jesus plus circumcision, okay? You're a guy, you, you want to be part of the, the group? You want to be part of you know, God's people? Then you have to do this. This was a big deal. So he goes on, verse 4, yet yeah, because of false brothers secretly brought in. So what are false brothers? Who are those? Those were people that were in the church in Jerusalem who were probably not members of the church, but they were kind of there. They called themselves Christians, but they really weren't. That happens, by the way, in churches. There are people who come in and say they're Christians, but they're really not. That's what these guys were. These were, again, those Jesus plus something people. And, uh, and it says, uh, they, they come in, it says, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery, right? So Paul chooses a military term here, uh, saying that these false brothers smuggled in people. It's kind of the idea. They smuggled in people uh, um, and lie in wait, looking for opportunities to turn against Paul, turn people against Paul. They were informants in some ways, double agents, who were turning what was freedom and maybe gray areas into black and white areas. Was it wrong for someone to get circumcised? No. Was it they need to? No. But they were saying you did, Okay. And they were taking, um, taking what was kind of open-handed and making it a closed-handed issue. These are essential. If you really want to be a Christian, you have to follow these specific rules. So, uh, and Paul would write about this, and he would talk about this a lot. Like, you don't add anything to it. Matter of fact, you don't add anything to Scripture. He would say in 1 Corinthians 4, when we studied through that book, verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself, he said, and the policy for your benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Don't add To it, there's nothing needed to be added to the gospel. For them, the commands to love God and love your neighbor were just kind of too general, right? We need some very specific rules on what that looks like. And so they needed concrete rules to follow. So that they, you say, why do they need specific rules? So that they could judge who was in and who was out, right? Who's righteous, who's not? Okay, are you following these rules? You're in. I don't care if you say you're a Christian or not, but are you following these rules? You're in. That's what they said. So these people made life hard for Paul. I believe this type of people are the thorns in the flesh that Paul would write about in the book of, uh, of Corinthians. But Paul didn't back down. He didn't succumb to this. It would have been much easier, right, to be like, you know what, let's just get you circumcised and let's get this over with so we don't have to worry about all this and have an argument about this. And I'm sure Titus is like, please no. Um, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Um, thank you, Paul, for backing me up on that one. But... Um, but he didn't, need, he didn't need the ease. He didn't need to avoid those things, have a pain-free life. He was like, ah, conflict, I'm just going to avoid it. Let's just do whatever we got to do to make it go away. He took it head on. Um, he had Jesus, he didn't, and he'd take whatever life threw at him as a result of that. So look at verse 5. In them, we did not yield. See, he didn't, didn't yield to, in submission, even for a moment. And this was important. It may seem like a really weird side thing of, like, being circumcised. Why is that important? Again, culturally, that is what made you in, in the in crowd really considered you a Christian, you maybe Varsity versus JV, he said, we didn't give in, not even for a moment, so the truth of the gospel might be preserved. You see, uh, every generation has to fight to preserve the gospel, because every generation will add something else. It may not be circumcision, like it was in that culture, but we add something else to say, now, that really makes you a Christian, Right? I know you say you are, but if you, you know, vote this way or if you look dressed like this or if you live here or you do this, that makes you really a Christian, right? We always add. And that's why we always have to fight to preserve the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So Paul held his ground. He did so not because he was stubborn or unloving. In fact, he did it because he was loving, all right? He loved these people. He loved the mission Jesus called him to. And the suffering that came along with it was worth it because Jesus was enough for Paul. Think about how Paul could have won many influential friends. He could have perhaps advanced his own personal standing with many uh, of these people in the Jerusalem church or people in other places by pursuing a more compromising approach. Life would have been a lot easier. But you know what? Paul didn't prize comfort and ease. (laughs) He didn't do it. Matter of fact, listen. we saw this in Acts 14, but I'll read it again. He said, uh, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds this is that same group of people, the Jesus plus something people. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead, and when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. This is, the, this is Galatia, by the way. This is the, how the church got started. When they preached the gospel to that city, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraged them to continue in the faith, and saying through many tribulations in the the kingdom of God. It's like, guys, there's going to be suffering. If you're going to believe Jesus plus nothing equals everything, people are going to challenge you on that one, and it's going to be some suffering. Matter of fact, later in the book of Galatians, Paul would even reference this personal story and say, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. In other words, he was beat, almost died, and he even references how this church got started. That's his reference to that. So is Jesus enough for you when it comes to following him, say, on the mission he has for you? When faced with two roads, one is easy, the other is hard, do you default to the easy one or do you seek the face of Jesus for what you should do for that? If you're going to follow Jesus on mission, it's going to be hard. It's going to take sacrifice. uh, For this is how the gospel always advances, through suffering people who believe Jesus is enough for them, who believe that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I love how uh, John Piper put it this way. He said... He's a pastor, uh, was a pastor there in Minnesota. He said, loss and suffering, joyfully accepted for the kingdom of God, show the supremacy of God's worth more clearly in the world uh, than all worship and prayer. He's saying people who are willing to suffer and embrace Jesus and take what comes along with that, that shows, okay, the world goes, okay, what's the, First Peter 3.15, what's the hope that lies in you? <laughs> Why are you willing to suffer for this, right? Right? Um, we need to be careful that we understand that. That's what God has called us to do, is follow him, and there's suffering comes along with it. It's repeated a lot in the New Testament. We need to not domesticate the call of Jesus here. Listen, uh, John 15:20, remember the word uh, that I said to you, "A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you." Philippians 1:29, Paul would write, "It's been granted, gifted to you. A grace is the word." That for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, you're like, oh, I like that grace, that's wonderful. I had a grace to believe, that's wonderful, but also suffer for his sake. Second Timothy 3, uh, 12, Paul's last letter, he writes here, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter uh, gets it on this, 1 Peter 2, 21. For this we have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Chapter 4, verse 12 of that same book, beloved. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And then Hebrews 13, the end of that book says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Outside the camp means outside the borders of safety, it means outside the borders of comfort. Outside the camp are where the other sheep are. They're not those fold that Jesus would talk about in John 10. Outside the camp are the unreached people who require no small sacrifice to reach for the sake of the gospel. But only those who believe Jesus plus nothing equals everything are willing to do that. Number four, uh, we don't need affirmation. Look how he ends here. He says, uh, on the contrary, when they saw that I've been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been trusted to the, the gospel to the circumcised, that's Jew and Gentile, he goes on to say, verse 9, James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who've seen pillars of the church, become the leaders of the church. They were the pastoral team there in, in uh, the first church in Jerusalem. Perceive the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So they're like, oh, so we, this is how they came to an agreement. So here we see that the, the Jerusalem pastors, all right, affirmed Paul and Barnabas as missionaries to the Gentiles, and non-Jewish people. And they gave, uh, I don't know, some... I don't know how the effort says here that they were, uh, they, were, they were given. It says the right hand of fellowship, some kind of secret handshake uh, in some ways, kind of like Pastor Justin and Rayanne have a secret handshake, by the way. If you haven't seen that, go ask him. It's pretty cool. They have a secret handshake that they do together. But, uh, but I love this about Paul. That he, did, he didn't need this affirmation. He didn't need this, this secret handshake, this, you know, um, affirmation. Uh, he said in, in chapter one, verse 16 and seventeen, that he didn't come to them at first because he didn 't need their affirmation. He said that at the beginning, like i didn't, I didn't need this from them, but I, you know, but it was good to have it now it's not that Paul was stubborn and not willing to accept affirmation or refused to do this secret handshake kind of thing. He gladly accepted it, but he didn't need it, which are two entirely different things it's nice to be encouraged, right it's nice to be affirmed that what you 're doing is It's worth it. Those are good things. I'm not saying don't do those things. Those are good things to do. But he didn't need it and nor do we need it to follow Jesus. It's not something you have to have when you have Jesus. Why? Because what Paul understood in the gospel is the truth that God knows him all the way to the bottom better than he knows himself. God knows things about Paul that no one else knows. Matter of fact, things that Paul probably doesn't even know and they're not good, right? And yet, God still died. Jesus still died on the cross for his sin. He still rose again. And as a result, God affirms him, right, Paul, as his son. He is now in Christ because of the gospel. And Paul could not get over that truth. You read books like Ephesians, he says it over and over and over again. I'm in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. I mean, I'm absorbed in him, right? Everything about him has been given to me. This is fantastic. He couldn't get over that God saw him that way. Right? And we'll see this in this chapter as well. Some of us need to repent. Over just we need we we feel we 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 say Jesus plus affirmation right we're scouring for affirmation you're sometimes you're you can be codependent your codependence as a result of just really disbelieving the gospel you don't believe that God is for you. you don't believe God's enough for you right you need someone else you need another person you fish for compliments maybe more than anything you you want people just to like you and it crushes you when they don't that's a gospel problem okay uh, Paul didn't need affirmation. As a matter of fact, he, he risked being rejected by bringing Titus along with him. And this was the gospel confidence that he had. He didn't fear man. Uh, he didn't care if everyone shunned him. Jesus was enough for him. Not only that, but Paul was willing to say the hard things, even if, it, if that cost him relationships. Okay? The whole trek to Jerusalem could have gone terribly wrong. This could have gone really bad. Right? Uh, he could have been shunned. He could have been, this, this agreement could have not come about. Um, he could have been rejected and ousted. But he didn't. I mean, for some of us, we, have a, we bought a false gospel that Jesus plus affirmation is everything. I got Jesus, but I really need people to like me. And you're good with Jesus as long as you're well-liked, right, by your friends, your family, neighbors, coworkers, whatever. And this can be seen by the fact that you rarely, if ever, okay, say the hard thing, because if I say the hard thing, I may lose some relationships. If I really speak the truth in love, okay, I'm not saying don't be a jerk when you speak truth, but when you speak the truth in love and you say the things that are maybe hard in a relationship and it may cost you that relationship, you venture not there, right? You go like, no, I'm not gonna say anything because I don't wanna, I, I need this relationship. I need this affirmation. I need them to like me, you see? Um, this, this is how, how that scene, Proverbs 27, 5 says, better is open rebuke than, than hidden love, right? It's better to speak that truth. My friends, longing for affirmation isn't wrong, right, it can be a very good and necessary thing in some ways, especially for like a young child's development, encouragement, like, hey, you're on the right track, you're doing the right thing, you know, all those things, that's good. But when it's king, when it is it, when it's what you want more than anything else, it won't matter how much affirmation you get, it will never be enough, right? We live in a culture, and I don't know if it's, it's kind of, okay, I'll give you an example. I was at Costco, one of my favorite places to visit, and I was texting my wife, I stopped at one point, I said, if someone else apologizes to me today, I think I'm gonna go nuts. Like, why does everybody say I'm sorry? I'm going down an aisle. Someone turns in that aisle. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't, I'm, I'm like, it's okay. There's a big aisle. We can both go down the aisle. It's all right. But, but I mean, like, I go around another corner. Oh, I'm so, I'm like, it's Costco. We're all got these big gigantic carts. Like, we're going to run into each other. It's okay. Stop apologizing to me. Like, you didn't do anything wrong. But there's this constant insecurity of like, I, I don't want to offend somebody. I, I want to make sure they like me. And that is, again, that's that false gospel idea that we're actually adding something. I need Jesus, but I need people to like me. It's a struggle, right? That's a struggle. But again, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Lastly, we don't need security. Verse 10, the last verse says, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, this verse is fascinating to me. It seems simple and you just move on and you read it, but if you really dig into it and read other, other um, books here, you, you find what's going on. The Jerusalem leaders, they send out Paul and Barnabas uh, with joy, right? But they give them one stipulation. Hey, can you remember the poor when you go? And you probably think that seems kind of strange, right? I, I thought they were supposed to preach the gospel. Like, what is this whole remember the poor thing? Uh, well, they were supposed to do both. We've talked about that. Two wings of the plane, right? Um, the, this would be costly to Paul. You see, here's the thing. When you, when you hear this verse read, you think, oh, Paul's supposed to go to, you know, Ephesus, and he makes sure to preach the gospel and make sure he remembers the poor there in Ephesus. That's not what this is talking about. You know who the poor are? Jerusalem. <laughs> read the other, other books. You find out it's Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem church, the people in Jerusalem who are extremely poor at this time in history. They were the ones that Paul was supposed to remember. Um, the place right where he's at right now. The place, by the way, that a lot of these false brothers are coming from that's causing all these problems for him. And he's supposed to remember them. He's supposed to help, help remember them in that way. In Acts, and history, we find... That Jerusalem, this Jerusalem area was in grinding poverty at the time. They had constant famines at this time, constant wars between the Romans and all that stuff was going on, overpopulation in many ways of that little area of land. And Paul had a glittering calling and ministry in front of him, yet he chooses to remember the poor in Jerusalem and even to give back to them along with the other churches he plants, as we'll see later. You read the book of Corinthians, he actually encouraged them all to give back. Let's give back to the church of Jerusalem. Let's help them out over there. This is why Paul, by the way, this is one of the major reasons why Paul had a little side hustle going on. You're like, what's a side hustle? It's like a side job. And so he has this side job going on as a tent maker, right? This is what he's doing. He's making tents. You, you can read this. You know, this is what he does. Is he's preaching the gospel you know, by day, tent maker by night kind of thing. You know, This is what he does. Why does he do that? He probably could have been financially supported by the churches he planted, um, but instead he takes their money, the money that they do have, you know what he does with it? Gives it back to Jerusalem. Over and over again, he does this. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9.12. He says, For the ministry of this service is only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. This is in the context of them collecting money to give back to the Jerusalem church. And Paul was eager to give his money away. And the money from the churches he planted to those in more need than him. He wanted to help this church. He wanted to help the, the city of Jerusalem, especially the poor there, even if people there had wronged him, which is what they do. How could Paul be so eager to do that? Again, answer, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Paul didn't need Jesus plus money uh, to be content. Um in 2 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10. He says, we are treated as imposters, yet are true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. It's like, I got everything. I got Jesus, I got everything. No matter how grateful we are for the money and the possessions that we have, they will not make the world think that our God is good. You understand that, right? <laughs> no matter how grateful you are for the stuff that you have, no one's going to go like, can you tell me about Jesus? Because, man, you are just so grateful for the stuff you have. It's not going to work. It doesn't happen that way. I'm not saying you shouldn't be grateful. <laughs> you definitely should. But that's not going to advance the gospel necessarily. It will make people think, and many times make, us think, uh, make them think that our God is money and possessions just like them. The Paul sacrifice. he went without. He worked long, probably extra hours just so that he could help the poor back in Jerusalem. And this is the kind of faith that causes people to ask for the hope that lies within you. It's not seeing Jesus plus money equals everything or Jesus plus security equals everything, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. They were willing to work extra hours and pour that out and, and sacrifice and give to others and that spoke volumes. Some of us, again, need to repent of maybe clamoring for, delighting in money and possessions more than Jesus I always need to repent of thinking maybe because you don't have much, therefore, this is not a, you're not greedy. We're all greedy, okay? No matter how much little or much you have. Um, there's a, there are the, the righteous poor, there's the unrighteous poor, there's the righteous rich, and the unrighteous rich, okay? Just the amount of money in your pocket doesn't make you righteous or unrighteous. It doesn't score you points with God to be poor, it doesn't score you points with God to be rich. Um, the way you tell if it's an idol is what you do with what you have, right? What do you do with what you have? Not just the paper money, but even the talents that God has given you? like, What do you do with them? Do you share them with others? Do you benefit the lives of others or you just hoard right, and take to yourself? Do you look for ways uh, that you can give to those in need? Do you work extra just so you can give more money away to those in need and to advance the gospel? Right? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. My friends, the call today is to take inventory of the things that we have, the dreams that we have, the people that we're connected to, Again, most of these things are probably good gifts from God, not wrong in and of themselves. But we have must ask the question, am I good? Am I okay if I lose blank? Fill it in. Doesn't mean it won't hurt. Doesn't mean it won't be tears, grief, right? You lose a loved one, that, that is devastating. But do I have to have this or that or this person or that? Right? Do I have to fulfill this dream? Do I have to do this in life in order to be really uh, satisfied? Can we truly say that Jesus plus nothing equals everything? Are you good with Jesus if you don't get fame, if you don't get in your own personal independence and be able to do your own thing? Are you okay with Jesus if you don't get ease, if you don't get affirmation, if you don't have security? Are you okay with that? Um, Again, John Piper put it this way. I thought it was a very good question for us to really evaluate where we are with Jesus today. He said, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the foods you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or natural disasters. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? That's a good question to ask. Would it be okay? Would you be like, hmm, I'll take all those things. I don't need Jesus. As long as I got those, because that's really what I got Jesus for. See, it helps reveal, like, why are you following Jesus? Are you following him for the things that maybe you can get from him? Or are you following him for the sake of love for him and what he's done for you? I'd remind you that in the gospel... In Jesus, you truly have all that you need. Ultimately, He gave up everything to give you Himself. Second Corinthians eight and nine, He said, "You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, He had everything, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich." Open your eyes to see, right? That it's not that you're too caught up in these things, right? The issue is not okay. I got I got I gotta get rid of these things. The problem is that we, again, going back to the beginning, it is—it's a heart problem, it's a faith problem. We're too easily satisfied with the things and the people around us that we lose sight of Jesus. i end with this quote by C.S. Lewis because pretty much I have to quote him every Sunday. Um, he said this. He said we're this is a good assessment of the human heart. He says we are half-hearted creatures, half-hearted. We're fooling about, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's our problem. We're too easily satisfied with the things of this world. We're too easily satisfied with our stage of life and where we are and the comforts that we have. The evaluation of the day is that are you okay if you lose things? Are you good with Jesus? Is it Jesus plus nothing equals everything or are you adding to him? As we take time to go to communion, to reflect on that, we've got cups there with juice and bread. We take those, it's there for remembrance. Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of him, to remember his body was broken for us, like the bread, and his blood poured out for us, like that juice. As you're ready, we're gonna take some quiet time here let you reflect, let you reflect on where you are with God uh, in this, reveal any idols that you may have in your heart, things that you're treasuring above Jesus, things that you think you need to add to Jesus, And lay those down before him. Here's a beautiful thing, guys. If you're following Jesus, you're still in grace. (laughs) God already knows those things about you. Just put them down before him, right? Ask him to work on your heart and your soul. And when you're ready, you can take take that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word. God, if we're on us with ourselves, there's so many depths down to our soul that we like to think that the things that we have and the people that are around us that we love and cherish and are good, good gifts we like to think that you're still more important than those things, and we don't need them. Um, we say that to ourselves, but if we're honest with ourselves, there's definitely moments, maybe more than moments, maybe days, weeks, months, years, that we really treasure those things more than you, that we want those things more than you. If we're honest with ourselves, I pray, God, you would help the Holy, uh, have the Holy Spirit actually work on us now to reveal any of those things that we have placed above you, Uh, That, God, that we can be the people that you've called us to be. So that the world may look and ask for the hope that lies within us because it doesn't make sense that we we believe that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That we're okay with just him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.